on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game. coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. On our Thursday shows, we always have one special guest who joins us for the full hour. We have an in-depth discussion about a lot of things. And usually they are guests who have I've talked with way ahead of time uh, or I've known over the years because we've been very politically active. Um, so, but this is not the case today. We have a gentleman joining us via Skype. He's not in studio, named Steve Dace. And I will bring him in in just a moment, but he is the host of the Steve Dace Show, which is on Blaze Media. You can, and you can find him on Twitter on at Steve Dace Show. Um, he is a very uh, popular podcaster. He's also the author of uh, The Nefarious Plot, which became the movie uh, Nefarious, which might've been one of the creepiest movies I ever saw in my whole life, um, but there we go. Um, so we're gonna talk about that too. He's just a very uh, astute political observer, uh, has a lot of strong views. And I discovered getting ready for this interview views that we don't always agree on everything. Imagine that. So we'll have a fun time talking. I wanna welcome to the show. Are we set here, Mr. Menil? Welcome to the show, Steve Dace. We have no sound here. Hold on a second, we have no sound. While you're, while you're uh, trimming up the sound, I want to mention a couple of things. You can hear me. He can hear me. Okay, so I yep, will tell I can you. hear you. Okay, there you go. Okay, so I was going to say in the introduction, uh, Mr. Dace, uh, that we're going to talk about you're speaking in Dallas, Texas next week at the Vitae Foundation fundraiser. My husband and I are sponsoring along with many others. Uh, it's a wonderful pro-life group. We will hit that. I want to talk about that in the beginning, of course. Uh, what that organization is all about and, and your pro-life message. But I want to tell you in introducing you that my husband and I have three grown kids and one, our middle one, um, our son, is um, he'll often, he comes over for dinner on Sunday nights. He lives near us in Texas and he comes over for dinner on Sunday nights. He'll often say, hey, you know what Steve, Steve Day said about blah, blah, blah? And I'm always saying, <laughs> what about what I said? How about my show? He's like, mom, I already know what you think. I talk to you all the time. But he quotes you, he tells us, well, Steve Dace doesn't think that. So um, anyway, it's very, been very fun. And of course, you're very successful in your podcast and you're just putting your uh, thoughts out there. So um, we'll get to our disagreements in a moment, but I first want to well, welcome you to the show um, and also uh, have you tell a little bit about your coming to Dallas next week for the Vitae Foundation dinner. And I don't know if you know about that group, a lot about that group, but they're unique even in the world of um, people who are organizations that are pro-life. They have a brilliant mission, so appreciate that. So uh, you'll be here in next, uh, you'll talk about your time next week in Dallas here at the Vitae Foundation. 
You bet. I'm going to be there uh, Thursday night keynoting their pro-life banquet uh, for the Vitae Foundation, as you said there, Debbie. VitaeFoundation.org is where you can go to get tickets if you want. V-I-T-A-E, VitaeFoundation.org. It's Thursday night, and if you come by, I hope you come by and say hello. I'd love to meet as many people as possible. I get down to Dallas uh, several times a year because the Blaze is headquartered there. Uh, so it's uh, not a, so I get a chance to see and meet a lot of people from Dallas. And my apologies for your middle child. It's always the middle child that's a problem. I have a middle child myself and, and she tends to think for herself and very contrarian. And so uh, I'm sorry for being a bad influence on your son, um, but uh, I appreciate his uh, support nevertheless. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being down there next week. You know, we are too. We're going to be at that dinner. We'll certainly see you then. We're going to miss the events uh, leading up to it because we're not available, but we'll look forward to meeting you. And actually, I'm not really complaining about our son because he's very, very well informed and he loves these discussions, which, you know, the kids all grew up in our household. Discussions around the dinner table, you know, they're about America, preserving freedom, political issues, uh, faith, the place of faith in America's founding and its present uh, state today. So we, these, we always have these serious dinner, uh, dinner discussions. But we used to be the only two who got to add any opinions, my husband and myself. Now we, now my son listens to you. No, just kidding. Okay, so on the Vitae <laughs> thing, I do urge people, I love what they do. And in Texas, we have a lot of pro-life organizations. Uh, Council for Life is a great organization here in Dallas. I think there are some other branches maybe around the country. But in any case, um, Vitae is unique and, and their speakers are always unique, their presentations, their methodology. I really urge you to come to this event uh, for Vitae. Uh, we love supporting them and look forward to being there next week. Okay, so now I'm done that. Um, so here's what I wanna start with. Uh, I actually do think it's an interesting thing uh, in the world of politics. People are pretty tuned in, read a lot, pay attention. You know, think a lot about politics, how really, really thoughtful people uh, can get off on, on, in different directions. I mean, on the conservative side of the aisle, or sometimes I say, same side of the aisle, you know, different pew or something. But um, I want to start, I guess, with the speaker's race, because I saw you've been tweeting about that a little bit. And the speaker's race, uh, ongoing, I believe, because Newsmax just put out that Steve Scalise may have to pull his name back because he couldn't get to the total votes he needed. And I was just curious, you know, the, I know you weren't a fan of the idea of McCarthy being voted out uh, as Speaker of the House, but what is your thought about where we should settle down on that? And I think you weren't too crazy about Steve Scalise, is that right? Correct. Well, in, in your opening montage, I, I saw one of my very best friends in there, uh, Congressman Chip Roy, is one of my best friends on earth. And I'm no Kevin McCarthy fan, uh, when I was at uh, Salem Media, before I came to Blaze Media, one of the things they tried to get us to do is to get weekly downloads when McCarthy, I think he was majority whip maybe at the time, uh, and they wanted all the hosts on there to get like weekly downloads from McCarthy, so we would essentially get fed talking points to then go out and give to our audience. And I'm just not into that at all. I'm kind of a, uh, if you want my opinion, great. If you don't, then don't put me on your airwaves. Uh, so I didn't attend a single one of those. Um, I thought he would make a terrible speaker. I was all for the fight back in January uh, to oppose him, if for no other reason to extract some form of leverage, given he is a, just another in a long line of the typically desperate Republican technocrats who just want power for power's sake. Um, I think too many Republicans, Debbie, run for office to be somebody rather than to do something. I think that's the biggest difference between the two parties is I think most Democrats run to do things and most Republicans run to be something. 
And I thought he was one of those. Uh, no agenda, just a technocrat. And he largely was that as speaker and really didn't deliver on anything. My problem with this particular vote, though, is no plan. Right when we have a very limited window right now, as Chip has pointed out, to extract some form of, of, of leverage through the budget process. And, and if we don't do it now, it won't happen next year in an election year. The rest of this year is shot. That all being said, I'm totally fine with just uh, adding McCarthy as a scalp for no reason whatsoever other than just to add a scalp. But one thing that we don't do a lot in this era is on, on our side is plan. Everything's very reactionary, very emotional, um, <clears throat> instinctive. And we're up against people that have been executing Antonio Gramsci's long march to the institutions very methodically and effectively for decades. And they know what they're doing, and they have a plan, and they wrote books like After the Ball in the late 1980s to, to, to tell you what the Rainbow Jihad was going to do. And they have followed their plans to a T. And I think that the idea that we're just going to constantly be willy-nilly, kind of French Revolution, we're really ticked off, so storm the Bastille, and not have a plan, it's all 4D chess, we're getting our butts kicked doing that. And I think that we need, we need to actually take, make maturity great again, take planning great again. <laughs> It's okay to be smarter than our opponents. We don't have to be funnier, wittier, meaner, trollier. It's okay to outmaneuver them, to outclever them. And this idea that only technocrats care about plans and ideologues don't have any, I hate that false choice. I think we've got to get back to making, being clever and shrewd. I think it's time to make those things great again. So many directions to go in response to everything you said. Uh, to start with, I, I think Chip Roy is great, too. He's a friend, too. He's been on the show numerous times. I've actually known him prior to the time he was in Congress in a variety of positions, uh, and mm -hmm. I think he is a great thinker. I love what they did when they were trying to extract concessions, as you were alluding to a moment ago, uh, when C Congressman McCarthy became Speaker McCarthy, and they took, to me, the, the importance of what they extracted, the concessions, was that they were shifting power away from this one individual, the Speaker, and giving more and more power to the broader base of Republicans and the, the broader caucus, the broader base of Republicans in Congress. And I think that was really important. I think that just the uh, situation, whatever, forever reasons over history, the Speaker's position became more and more powerful, and the Rules Committee ruled everything. It still does kind of rule everything, but I, mm -hmm. I, I love those concessions. To your point about having a plan or not, here, I've talked about this in my show many times, but this long march through the institutions, it symbolizes what leftism is all about, which is we are about taking down America the great, unique, and extraordinary. We are about reducing the promises or eliminating the promises of the founding from the declaration of the Constitution. Our plan is destruction and remaking America into the image of a socialist Marxist movement, the, the communist world. That is where the left lives. And at this point, they've had the, the left has more power than they've ever had in American history. They have mm -hmm. so much power. And they have, and the reason they do the determined march with a plan is because they have a mission to change things. I think for many conservatives, you know, we may want to fix certain problems, but conservatives are trying to preserve America. They're trying to preserve the foundational ideas, the, the Judeo-Christian values underlie it. And so we don't have a, you know, take, storm the, the beaches attitude. We want to just protect the American homeland. We want to protect our constitution, our rights. So we don't, and there hasn't been until very recently, a sense of urgency, a sense of immediacy on our side saying, we better stand up and really, really fight because we're about, we have lost much of the freedom that was promised in our constitution. We are losing more and there are people waking up. And so that was a big question getting around to the speaker. They got this, this new speaker, got McCarthy rolling, 
but he didn't do a lot of things that he said he would do, uh, but he did some of them, and he was trying to, the budget process is overwhelmingly important. Uh, in fact, I think the same day you had Chip on your show, I had, um, I don't know, I think it was the same day, anyway, um, I had Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne here in Texas, who was equally livid with what occurred with the speaker vote, equally upset about the idea that uh, Matt Gates had orchestrated this thing and, and taken the speaker out. But so here we are, you know, whether it was a good or bad vote, I, and I agree in your focus or determination to get to um, to get to a new speaker and get, I guess, or maybe even get Kevin McCarthy back, but get to where we can get on top of the budget again. So I want to run a few names by you. What would you have thought? Here is my favorite choice, mine, for a speaker after McCarthy was out. What if they could have brought Devin Nunes back? What's your thought about him? I think that, that the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, like Scalise to me, ideologically, look at the voting record, him and McCarthy are the same guy. It's just Scalise is a more sympathetic figure because they tried to murder him. But And that, by the way, would make it easier to, or harder, I think, to get rid of him later. I think there'd be a sympathy vote for him. So uh, the news that you just broke to me, that it looks like he can't get to 217, I'm ecstatic to hear that. So I think that's good news. I, I think that the, the one thing that we have to do, again, on the right, is we have bifurcated the vocational aspect of politics with our ideology. And so you used a key term a minute ago, rules committee. I'll just use this as an example. A lot of conservatives, when our people get involved politically, they want to be on the platform committee because they 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 want to re, they want to write the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Council of Nicaea of 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 issue platforms, and it's beautiful and it's often biblical and constitution and constitutional and it's brilliant, and nobody cares. Because the power, to quote a, a, a famous person from your state, Lyndon Johnson, power is where power goes. The power is in the rules committee. The power is in who gets the, the golden rule, whoever makes the rule, whoever you know sits on that committee makes the rules. And, and the idea of who gets to run, who gets to be the face of things, who gets the platform, who gets the power, we need to spend less time on the platform committee and more time on the rules committee. Our people need to think more vocationally. So when you give me a guy like Devin Nunez, for example, right now I look at the traffic at Truth Social, which he is running, and it's garbage. It's trash. They had six million visitors last month. That's nothing. Or, I'm sorry, visits, not even visitors. I mean, that, that wouldn't be anything compared to the, tra the visitors. The Blaze gets 18 million unique visitors a month. So when you only have six million visits a month, I don't think that thing will be in business for very long. Uh, there's got to be somebody who has the right ideology, but can actually do the job. Can you manage a caucus? Can you manage people? Can you manage relationships? Can you manage um, appointments? Can you can you communicate a narrative? That's so much of what of what politics is today. The idea of the bully pulpit, but the, but the utilization of all media for the communication of a narrative, because that's all most people get nowadays is 30 to 90 second sound bites. It's all yeah. they have time for. If I can't make, um, if I cannot message in that amount of time, I'm done. And so that idea of can I do the job, not just do I have the right ideology. I look at Jim Jordan, for example. I mean, ideologically, I'd be, I mean, I've got a few issues with Jim, like on big tech stuff, but overall, ideologically, he'd be a dramatic upgrade over Scalise or, um, or Kevin McCarthy. But the question becomes, though, can he do the job? His weaponization committee this year basically accomplished nothing. Now, is that because they were hamstrung by leadership? We don't know. OK, but that's the uh, that we it's not just an ideological position, Deb. And that's the same thing, Debbie. It's the, that's the same thing with president and everything else. Can you vote?
vocationally perform the tasks that go along with that as a job. My job as a broadcaster, talking into the microphone is just part of the job. The, the research, the selling of the show, the marketing of the show, the branding of the show, the showing up at events like the Vitae Foundation, meeting people, working a room, commanding a presence at a podium when, it, when, it, when it's given to me, um, moving my own ideology, uh, the marketing of ancillary materials that my name goes on, books, movies, etc. That, that this is just one part of the job, is the ideas I communicate into the microphone. But vocationally, there's a whole other skill set that must be performed adequately to get me to the point that I can now command this microphone. And the same thing goes in politics. It's not just, am I great on the issues? Can I vocationally do the job? We've gotten outmaneuvered for many years because the technocrats with no soul and no ideology mastered the vocational aspect of politics, took over the rules committees, and they left us to, to write the ideological platform nobody cared about. We've got to get better at the vocational aspect of politics and treat it like a profession. Very well said, and I'd love to understand who within Congress understands what you just said. I mean, I, I really would like to know that. Is there an observation within someone within the Republican caucus to say it's a big job? See, I look at somebody like Chip. I look at, pardon me, but I look at somebody like Chip. Chip has worked on Capitol Hill as a chief of staff for two different kinds of Republicans. I mean, John Cornyn and my old boss, Ted Cruz, are dramatically different people, okay? In terms of ideology, personality, you know that as a Texan even better than I do. All right, so, so Chip has worked for both of those kinds of personalities. Ideologically, like, he's unquestionable. You're talking about basically a 99 percenter. And so to me, there is a guy who understands how to make sausage on Capitol Hill, but also ideologically does it with our worldview in mind. That's kind of who I'm talking about. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you this. The next thing is, what about Chip Roy? You know, he's a relatively junior congressman. Usually people view the speaker as someone who's been around and knows the ropes. But these days, I think we were describing and, you know, it's the backdrop of this discussion about who should be a speaker, what is needed to really be a good speaker, the, you're using the term, the vocational aspects. You're talking about someone who can handle the large scope of the job, which isn't just you know, standing at the microphone and, and keeping the order, order during the house uh, business. Mm -hmm. You're talking about mm -hmm. all the things you, you mentioned a minute ago, the, the background stuff. And that used to seem, make people think, well, you had to have been in Congress for a long time. You had to have learned the ropes and understand personalities. But I really think, all that we're describing and talking about is in, against the backdrop of an astonishingly uh, alarming period of American history, where we have the left, this long march you alluded to, has they, they've kind of gotten to the top of the hill. The left is controlling many of the levers of power. The, the White House, or you know, it's not Biden, but the White House. It, the left is controlling it. They're controlling the Senate. They have, uh, you know, only a tiny. They're close to hope of controlling the House. They don't have the majority yet. But even beyond that, we have the, the leftism that has infected uh, federal agencies. The, the, in my view, the DOJ and FBI need to be just, you know, cleaned out uh, shortly after if we can ever get um, a conservative back in power. I'm getting at this argument about who to choose for speaker is so much bigger than it is uh, th than in, in more peaceful times because we are looking at the real the beginning of the ending of freedom in America where we mm -hmm. talk about the January 6 prisoners how they're treated the destruction of the southern border we're, we're facing facing cataclysmic you know conduct by the left and our side is scrapping around and can't figure out how to move forward. The budget all by itself is a, is a dangerous a disaster that we're in the budget and spending is out of control. So 
it's a monumental time, and you, you talked, I know you write frequently and speak frequently about the power of prayer, but I think there are so many people in this country just, you know, there has to be a way out of this mess, and one step along the way has got to be a, a more cohesive Republican majority in the House and Senate, but the House majority has to come together, be cohesive, and get on the job of saving America. And it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger than a personality or you know, class president contest. Is mm -hmm. who's going to lead the troops at this time? We are losing the country. Your reaction? I think you said it very well, Debbie. I, I, I couldn't say it much better myself. I'll just add this as a postscript, if you don't mind. Uh, whoever assumes this position uh, will be the highest elected Republican Party official in America, at least until the next presidential election, which is, you know, oh, what about 400 days from now? Yeah. And then you're going to add on, what, uh, another 60 days until an inauguration? So for the next, say, 450 days, whoever assumes this position will be the face of the right in America electorally. And if, and if, the, if the Republicans don't win the next presidential election, could very well be the face of the right electorally for the foreseeable future. It is vastly important to get this right. We cannot be in a situation where we're just having tantrums and dropping people all the time. And then you're like what Reagan said about the Soviet Union when they kept asking him why he doesn't have a summit with the Soviet premier. And he kept saying, well, they keep dying on me. If you remember that era, those guys just died every six months. All right. And because we can't have a clown show, the American people will always and, and people. This is human nature as a general instinct. People will always choose security over chaos, even bad security. Even bad security, if they sense chaos, if they sense you're not an adult, if they sense that you don't know what you're doing, if they sense that you're uneasy, that you're not to be trusted, all right, then they will go with what they trust even when it's bad. That is a true story. It's a true story. As many of the arguments people make, you know, even during COVID and other times, your freedoms are being uh, threatened. When they sense chaos or fearful, they'll take security even to the point of surrendering freedom, irrationally surrendering freedom, surrendering things that they shouldn't be surrendering. Well, on the speaker's race, I, I am, you know, I just think there's a nation full of um, earnest Christians and, and our Jewish friends who are praying about this nation because there has to be a new nucleus of power emerged in the Republican Party because our country needs it. Throughout American history, we had people arise out of, you know, out of... Uh, the times we needed to have a leader, whether it was Revolutionary War times, we had people step up and maybe they weren't, it wouldn't be someone you would have viewed to be that kind of person prior to the emergency. But we're like in an emergency phase of American history and there just has to be answers, there have to be answers um, that, that come to us about how to deal with um, the, not just the speakership, but how to, to bring the Republican Party in the, the caucus in Washington and the House together enough to move things forward. It's a, um, it's, it's a vital need, so I'm going to, um, as many people are, continue um, praying about that. Um, I'm happy to, uh, if any last shots on the speaker's race, I had a, a couple of topics I want to go to, but any of the last thoughts about the speaker situation? I think it is vitally important of all the skills I just mentioned, the ability to articulate a narrative. I, I give, I go back to uh, the other day, Jim Jordan was on uh, Fox and Friends, otherwise known as uh, um, Ukraine Forever War in the Morning. Yes. Okay. And, and I love the way that he turned their false premise about 
Um, Ukraine is the 51st, unannounced 51st state, uh, turned it around on them and said, hey, what are the, what's the mission? What are the objectives? What's the benchmark for success? All right. And, 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 and put some objective criteria on that, on that controversy. The way that he messaged that um, and kind of shut them down as he was doing so, I think it is vitally important um, that whoever gets that job of all the skills that I mentioned earlier, the most important one is the ability to use that office to craft a narrative that is understandable and accessible and achievable is the most important, I think. Love that. Great thought. Now I'll turn to another issue of chaos in America today. It really is how to respond to what's occurring um, in Israel. And two days ago on my show, I had a wonderful expert talking about the condition, really, of um, what's happening in Israel and stepping back from that, trying to, again, as I'm sure you have with your listeners also, uh, try to help people understand it's not as though Hamas, who is the original one targeting Israel at this time, it's not Hamas individually or just some little splinter group that's come after Israel. It is the, um, the umbrella within the Muslim Brotherhood. It's, uh, now it's Hamas has attacked in Gaza. Now Hezbollah is coming in from the north. Israel's being decimated, and as they're talking about going after the Gaza Strip and, and just saying, you know, in fact, they've announced recently, you know, you're, we're going to destroy the Gaza Strip unless we get the prisoners back uh, that they have kidnapped out of Israel. It is a um, time bomb of a problem. And I know some people respond by saying, well, you know, it's the Middle East. But it has been, the Middle East has been a disaster forever, you know, for a millennia. And we can, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't solve it. We should stay out of it. But to my sense, I do want to hear your reaction. To my sense, you know, Israel is not obviously only our main and uh, relevant ally in the Middle East because they are, they are approaching a, a, a true, they, they do have a democracy. They represent government. They have rights guaranteed. You can be a, a Muslim Arab living in Germany, uh, living in Israel, and you have free speech. You can you can say whatever you want. Um, and so it's a, it has Western freedoms, and it is being pummeled by Hezbollah, Hamas, and surrounding uh, majority Muslim countries are, are saying to Israel, if you start fighting back, we think you're fighting back too hard, we'll attack you too. So, you know, it's a, it's a, conundrum, of course, and in great part people concerned because the Biden administration has been has been guilty of, in my view, aiding and abetting what, what now is happening to Israel. You've had the money that was just transferred to Iran recently, which is, you know, the main funder of, of Hamas. And so we're sending them $6 billion and they're passing it along. We have the, the equipment we left in Afghanistan. And I just, you know, you are a really articulate and thoughtful uh, thinker about all that's happening to America. Part of the answer people have been saying is, I'm so sick of the idea of what we're doing in Ukraine. I don't, I don't want the threat of war over there. I don't want American troops over there. We've got to stay out of Israel as well. We, and I'm not suggesting sending troops there, but do you believe America has a strongly vested interest in fighting and in helping Israel defend itself against this, this attack? So yesterday, Debbie, the uh, Biden administration said that uh, at last count, 22 Americans have been killed in Israel's 9-11 on Saturday. And to, to put that in perspective, if that terrorist attack had happened on U.S. soil, it would be the fifth deadliest uh, terrorist attack in American history. So, I mean, we can be America first. I'm all for uh, making our own national interests and the interest of our people our prime directive. All right. I'm an evangelical. 
I believe in sola scriptura, right? And so one of my best friends, who's my assistant, is with me on the show, Todd. He's a Roman Catholic. What's the biggest difference between him as a Catholic and me as an evangelical? It really comes down to that, sola scriptura, that I think the Bible is, uh, is alone is the ultimate authority on ecclesiastical matters and matters of conscience and truth. However, I didn't say that the Bible, I didn't say solo scriptura. I didn't say that the only truths of this world are found in the Bible. I will not learn how to perform open heart surgery from the Bible. I will not learn how to do seismic readings from the Bible. Um, I, I mean, I, it, that's, it, it, it's not the only source of truth. It's the ultimate source of truth. Those are two different things. So same with America first. There's America first where we prioritize ourselves. And then there's America only. And that's just a made up world that just isn't achievable in this era. And so if America first means we have no interest whatsoever in, in justice for the loss of nine countrymen, or I'm sorry, 22 countrymen, because it happened on foreign soil, then I don't even know morally what we are doing here. On top of that, this is different than Ukraine. Israel is a natural ally, as you mentioned. We, let's, let, as mutual Christians here, let's pretend we're talking to pagans. And we'll just set aside Abrahamic covenants and all that language and theology and stuff that they would not understand without eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's just look at it geopolitically. This is the most, other than our own homeland, this is the most strategically important region of the world. More energy and petroleum flows in and out of this region of the world than any other. Oil is literally the most important resource on planet Earth other than humans themselves. And so we have one natural ally there in terms of way of life as you articulated. Of course we have a strategic thought here. Of course we have a strategic initiative here and a strategic advance here and objective here. So we would have that on just geopolitical grounds before we even brought in um, the more theological or, or, or spiritual or Abrahamic covenantal aspect of things, just speaking to a secular world. So obviously our interests ally here. Now, I don't, I mean, the Israelis have proven since 1947, they're darn good at defending themselves. What they need more from the United States than for us to, 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 to give Lindsey Graham what he wants and we're just bombing every, bombing the world, basically. A 70-year-old man who's never had any children certainly finds a lot of wars he wants your children to die in. Isn't that yeah. fascinating? Yeah. So we're, we, 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 there's a lot of things we can do for Israel other than that. Here's the first thing we can do. Uh, make sure we have their back in the arena of ideas and on the world stage, if, if Israel finally, you know, we've had, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of tough talking politicians and Netanyahu has talked tough a lot over the years, but then not necessarily delivered. They need to actually deliver on the tough talk over there this time. A message clearly has to be sent that they need to go full Chicago way here. If you get the movie reference, I just made, they, they need to, they need to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth to the point that you'll just have to create an entirely new terrorist brand because no one would dare uh, set foot on, on the raised ground from, which, from whence you came ever again. Uh, and I think the, the number one thing that we could do is to back them up in, within the media, within the world stage, uh, the pressure from, uh, from, from more pagan or secular or left-wing uh, areas like the EU, for example, is giving them the moral support, we've got your back, do what you must do to defend your homeland. I think that's the absolute most important thing that we can do for Israel right now. Couldn't agree more. I love uh, that uh, everything you've said on the subject of Hamas, and you may have had guests on your show over time that talked about these ideas too, but Hamas is just simply 
they believe what they're doing is following us, that they've been taught in the Quran, they're following what the Quran instructs, which is Islamic Jihad is your obligation, not just your right, but your obligation to do, if you can, to spread Islam by any means necessary. And, and from the founding of Islam, from writing in the Quran, the whole mission was to spread Islam, and they particularly, even back in the time of the writing of the Quran, uh, when Muhammad was around, he's talking about the Jews, you have to kill the Jews, they must be eliminated, we can't have the Jews, um, you know, they, they must be killed or converted. And I don't even know if he would allow the conversion of Jews. I'm getting at the point, this is a, a modern-day battle by Hamas against Israel, by Hezbollah from the north now against Israel. That's been going on since the founding of Islam. The other point that was brought out by our expert on Tuesday was, in America, because our southern border has been so porous and because we are careless enough or... Uh, cavalier enough to not be mindful about what people come here, the largest single concentration of Hamas-affiliated individuals in the world is in America, not in any of the Muslim-majority countries. The number of people who are committed to Hamas or part of Hamas spread around America is staggering. And so to your point a moment ago, if you say that you to just be the moral compass, the moral voice that just says, as America, we do not tolerate Islamic Jihad, we do not tolerate the idea of you kill or convert your enemies, intolerable here, will not be accepted. It is a, um, it's a, something is almost politically incorrect to say. You know, every time you question anything about Islam, you're called Islamophobic. There's a need to stand up and say, America has Judeo-Christian roots, Judeo-Christian values. That's who we are. They're inconsistent with those who embrace at least Islamic Jihad. And we are not going to humor it in our country. We're not going to humor it. We're not going to tolerate it. I don't know what actions that would mean our government would take, but just the moral stance you're describing, and it would really bolster, I think, the European Union. By the way, European Union, usually rather spineless, has actually spoken up and talked and, and on Israel's side in this particular um, episode in, in Israel, but there's just a crying need for brave voices in America, in European Union, every other place to say, the world's not going to tolerate this latest, this, I think this is now the fourth wave jihad, the historians describing the waves of jihad. It's the fourth wave, I think. We're just, there needs to be a voice just saying, this is not gonna be okay in this world. I love your reaction to all of that. I think uh, I love the fact of I, I love the theological difference here, differences here that you addressed because they're they're paramount in understanding the thread. I'm one of the last interviews that uh, George W. Bush gave uh, before he left the White House. He was he was asked, uh, "Do you believe we all worship the same God, Christians and Muslims?" And he said, "Yes, yeah, we all worship the same God." Well, here's the problem with that: the the Quran. If you've ever tried reading it, and I have. And it's a very random book. It's very stream of consciousness. Muhammad was illiterate himself. Um, and, and the earliest uh, manuscripts of the Quran that we have are from hundreds of years after when he left, rather than as opposed to the New Testament, where we literally within, within a decade or two of the time of Christ have manuscripts of Paul's letters, for example. Um, and, and so there, the, 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 the technical integrity of Islam, the, the structural and, and, and uh, manuscript integrity of Islam in the Quran is not as intact as it is in Christianity. That's why they have Sunnis and Shias. They divided into two camps after Muhammad's death right away. Um, they wrote, uh, each side has written multiple hadiths over the years as kind of clarifications of things. And that's, that's there's a plenty of violent language in the Quran, but the really violent stuff is, is what you'll find in the hadiths. But if you read the Quran, for example, and this is probably something a lot of Christians don't know, Jesus 
Jesus is in the Quran. He is referred to as the son of Mary. Uh, Muhammad says that uh, Allah hid Jesus from the Jews so that they could not uh, crucify the prophet. Um, and, and now Christianity teaches that Jesus died on a cross and rose again. So I don't know how one religion who teaches Jesus was not crucified, so he didn't rise again, and another religion that teaches Jesus was crucified and did rise again, and that, that by the way, that fact, whether it occurred or not, is the core moment and, and data point of which the integrity of your entire belief system hinges. I don't know how it's possible with those fundamental facts in dispute that you're worshiping the same God. Both Christianity and Islam could both be wrong. But they cannot simultaneously both be right. They have dramatically different views. But this is something that a lot of Americans don't know. A lot of Americans don't know uh, that Muhammad never and, and Muhammad never set foot in the in Israel. Uh, he visited it in a dream, and from there comes the Islamic claim on the Holy Land. A lot of Americans don't know that if you were to visit the Dome of the Rock, they don't even know what that is. All right. When the when the Muslims during the Crusades took over the Temple Mount and they erected the Dome of the Rock there, um, and and it's they engraved in Arabic and, and underneath that dome it has the words translated God has no son. I would defy anybody in your audience who thinks we all worship the same God to go to Amman, Jordan, or Dubai. Uh, the two most uh, modern, secular, progressive Islamic cultures on earth. Walk down the street in the middle of the day and just start screaming out the words, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Make sure you brought your Kevlar with you. You yeah. won't get away with that in Jordan and Dubai, let alone in Yemen or Iran. All right. But again, my people perish for a lack of knowledge, the prophet Hosea says in the scriptures. This is knowledge most Americans don't know. The teach churches don't teach it anymore. It was taken out of the schools. And so they're ignorant of many of the things in which you and I are talking about. But you know who's not ignorant of what they believe? The other side. They're not ignorant at all. Every Muslim in the Quran is called to jihad. Most Americans believe jihad means holy war. That is not what it means. It means internal or my struggle, meaning every Muslim is, Muslim is called to engage in the internal struggle to spread the dominion of Islam. The Quran breaks the world down into two groups. There are believers and infidels or kufr. And, if, and there's no love your neighbor as you love yourself with the kufr, by the way. You can treat them any way you want. So, for example, if you read your New Testament and Paul or, or John in the book of Revelation gets seven letters to churches from Christ, to churches in Asia Minor, where is Asia Minor? Modern-day Turkey, which means these were Christian enclaves. Where did those churches go? Well, they didn't do a referendum and decide by vote to become Muslim. No, they were conquered. Or they were forced to pay the jizya, the tax, in order to maintain their religion. And then after a while, that becomes so prohibitive, people just converted anyway to avoid paying it. They don't know this history. The other side does. And they think of this in terms of generations and eons. We think of it in terms of how do I solve this problem right now so I can move on to my next modern convenience or my next modern societal issue. And, and, and therefore, we are, we are completely blind in how we are operating in that part of the world. Unfortunately this, unfortunately, this iteration of Israel has become very secular itself. It has very high abortion rates. It has, it, it, it has a lot of rainbow jihad propaganda. 
Um, it, and and the, 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 it actually just had last in, before this iteration of Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett was actually the first religiously observant Jew to ever be prime minister of Israel since 1947. How did he respond? He turned that entire country over to Pfizer to be a one mass human trial of experimentation. Um, it, you know, so there's a there's a lot of lost worldviews. We're all suffering for Israel, the West. We are all suffering from, from the secularization of our cultures, from the turning of our back on our traditions and our heritages and our legacies, and most of all, for the turning of our back on God. And we don't know how to handle a culture that won't do the same. We, 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 after 9-11, we went to Iraq and Afghanistan and basically said, all right, we'll get rid of the bad guys, and then you guys will give you KFCs and movie theaters and internet porn, and you guys can be just like us. Right. And, and and welcome you into modernization. And those cultures dramatically rejected that. And we couldn't figure out why. It's because just because we're losing our religion doesn't mean they're losing theirs. You cannot project you, yourself and your ambitions upon your enemies. You have to accept your enemies for who they are. And so we didn't do that, though, Debbie. And so we did things like this after 9-11. We imported two since 9/11, from 2001 to 2018. We imported 2.3 million people from Islamist countries into this country. To put that number in perspective, if the population of, of people from Islamist countries that we have imported since 9/11, if it was its own state, it would be the 37th largest state by population in America. New Hampshire is going to have a primary in February, first of the nation primary. That would be more people than live in New Hampshire. And we imported them into our country. Why would we do that? That's suicidal. We did that at the same time. Our birth rates since 2000 and, and, or over the last 15 years are down ac across the board, 23%. We have, the we have the lowest marriage and birth rates we have ever had. So what do you get when you stop replenishing yourself, when you stop passing on your heritage, when you stop passing on your legacy and traditions, and instead you import 2.3 million people who have a completely different worldview, heritage, and legacy from you, that's called cultural suicide. Absolutely it is. You know, I'm going to respond to a bunch of points you made. I could not agree more with what you're saying. Uh, one of the points this guest I had on the show Tuesday uh, brought in a textbook, which he you could order on Amazon, but it's the main textbook used in Islamic schools in America today, the charter schools, other Islamic schools. They're all over the country. There are many of them in Texas. He just opened and read certain things, and these are what are actually being taught in today in America, in Islamic schools, very much what you mentioned, and I was mentioning too, that the duty to commit jihad, Islamic, to, to actually push to, to kill or convert other people to Islam is a duty. They, they, and so we think, well, that was probably ancient times, that was probably, you know, Muhammad maybe said that, but that wouldn't be true now. It's what's being taught as we sit here. And to your point about bringing all these people into America from, from Islamist countries, Again, it's part of that whole long march, the institutions, the, the destruction of our, our belief in ourselves, our country, our mm -hmm. religion, our heritage. You don't even, and when President Trump tried to make some limits on who was able to come to America uh, through immigration to try to check are these people coming from countries, it had to, you had to tiptoe around to define what might be okay to say in a federal regulation or some po federal policy. You could barely say we better be really careful about people coming from countries who hold these views. 
and he could barely get, he finally did get, I think after two, I believe it was twice, the regulations drafted was struck down by a court. I think the third time something that he put out, he had created or his team created uh, was put through. But the concept of it was we can't even write down in our own government a regulation sufficient to keep Islamists who would engage in Islamic jihad, we can't figure out whether or not we should let them in this country or not. It's truly remarkable. It is, as you say, a suicidal thing. One other thing for our listeners, well, can I make way, one, la one, last, one last point on that, if you don't mind? Forgive me. I, I was, I was trying to look this up on my phone, and I just couldn't make it work here in real time. Um, so I hope that didn't distract you. But just to put the number of 2.3 million in perspective. Let's say we fully vetted all 2.3 million of those people. Now, you and I both know we didn't fully vet all 2.3 million of those people. Let's say, though, we did. And let's say we have a 99% hit rate. 99%. Meaning we our, our, our vetting methodology is so strong that we hit on 99%. Again, you and I both know we didn't vet all 2.3 million. You and I both know it's impossible to come up with a vetting tool that's 99% accurate, okay? But, but let's just play with that for just a second. Even if we missed 1%, that is a standing army of terrorists of over 20,000 that we've allowed that are they're just uh, sleeper cells throughout the country. Right. And since 9-11, in, in previous eras, if something like a 9-11 would have happened, as Christians, we would have had to go to people like Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird and say, no, we're not going to persecute people because they look like the people that did this to us. We're not going to take people's rights away because they don't fit our traditions or because of paranoia. We're going to treat everybody like they're in the image of God. We would have had to have stopped our culture from overreacting the other way in any other era, right? In this era, here's what we did instead. We said, we're so sorry that you attacked us. We're going to actually import more of these people instead. Yep. It's insane, Debbie. It's absolutely insane. Even if we vetted them all and we were right on 99% of them, 1% 1 is 23,100 terrorist sleeper cells stationed all throughout the country as we speak. How many Oklahoma City bombings is that? How many San Bernardinos is that? How many, how many Orlando gay nightclubs is that? How many? A lot. Oh, right. Those numbers, they are staggering. I'm glad you did that breakdown. And it really is true today with modern weapons. You don't have to have an army of hundreds of thousands of people on your side. A small number, uh, well-orchestrated, well-connected, with a plan, are going, could do tremendous damage, and, and we just let them in. I do want to mention, because your idea about what, the difference in how, what we think about God, uh, there was a wonderful book, Nani Darwish, has been on my show numerous times. Her last name is D-A-R-W-I-S-H, Nani Darwish. She wrote, a, she's written numerous books, but her most recent one is called Wholly Different, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, Wholly Different. She grew up in mm -hmm. Islam, she's a Christian American, and she's trying to say, to your point about what George Bush said, do not think it's the same God. It's wholly different, entirely different. What Islam thinks God is, and the description of God is vengeful and angry and, 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 and demanding of his followers. They go kill innocent people. The, and she describes, she, it's actually a really, um, it's a substantive, serious book, but it runs through all the differences that people just assume. And we in our culture, we want very much to assume no one really means us harm and probably everything's okay. And it's probably an overreaction to be concerned. She's just saying, no, no, if, when you, once you understand 
what they say God is, it's nothing like the God of Christianity, night and day, and, and values and principles, and, and how it teaches you to, to live your life, what values you're supposed to carry out in your life. It's, a, it was, and it's an important perspective because she grew up in, um, I think, Egypt. I forgot where she grew up. Okay, let me do one uh, quick thing because we're going to, um, yeah, watching the clock here. I uh, wanted two other quick things. I mean, I, mean, I, I, think, I think after 9-11, for a brief period, people in America were alarmed enough. I, I know I didn't understand Islam. I didn't know a thing about it at, after at 9-11. That's and why I read I, the Quran. I was curious myself. I didn't understand. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're thinking, because you want Americans to try to find some rational reason. Why would they do this? We, we must have done something to them. That's why they did this. The same thing as a reaction about Israel. Well, clearly Israel must have done something which has made Hamas mad. We finally grasp it has nothing to do with what we did. The 9-11 attack was not because we Americans did something wrong. The attack on Israel is not because they did something wrong. It's because of the fundamental teachings of Islam and, and the only, I mean, the, what they're starting to talk about in Israel is, yeah, this not just presence in Israel, Hamas and Gaza Strip just, just must be rooted out at, at, all, at any expense. Okay, we only have like 12 minutes left. I'm going to make sure I mention Vitae again. Um, the other thing I was uh, trying to, and I'm, I'm going to ch uh, step in dangerous territory here, okay? I told you in the beginning, I, I've read a lot of your stuff. And I will tell you, on the presidential race next year, uh, which is you know, going to be here around the corner, primaries in March, we'll have our candidate on the GOP side for the president, certainly by May, probably by March. Um, what is your sense? I mean, to me, what's happening to America, I want a president who will clean house at the DOJ and the FBI and the DOD and the NSA and the IRS. I want a massive cleaning out of the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., and I think Trump will try to do that. He is not a perfect man, as none of us are, but I think he'll try to do that. And to me, it's among the most, it's priority number one is to clean out this deep state. So I know you've been uh, backing Governor DeSantis, and do you think he's got that as a mission? I think he's already done all the things you want Trump to do. And I think we gave Trump a chance to do it, and he didn't. Uh, Trump faced, Trump was a very good president, but then he faced his first real crisis on March 16, 2020. And what he did on that date is essentially surrender his presidency to that deep state, handed it over to the NIH, handed it over to Anthony Fauci, effectively made him a prime minister. His presidency never recovered. Uh, we had the riots uh, that year. The mistakes that were made that year are the reason everything that's happening in the country right now. Look at election fraud. Where did the money for the ballot harvesting come from? $400 million came out of the CARES Act to all the states for to create the ballot boxes that did the ballot harvesting around the country. Without COVID, there would not have been an election. I think they did steal the election. I was pretty adamant about that as I was watching it happen in real time on election night, help anchoring the Blaze's election night coverage. But why did they have that opportunity? Because the government shutdowns gave them the excuse to do so. Um, so... Then he handed over a blank check to companies like Pfizer and Moderna to create what is frankly a poison. And to this day, he's not remorseful about it at all. Not, I mean, I live in Iowa, first of the nation caucus state. This has been brought up to Trump at multiple campaign events. He's completely unapologetic whatsoever. On the other hand, the other guy, all he's done since he took over is go after the bureaucracy in his state. 
Over two dozen government officials have been fired, suspended, removed, uh, including Soros prosecutors. The reason why we didn't have a bunch of the Florida, uh, the election mess in Florida that everybody else had is because he got rid of people like the Broward County Election Commissioner who would have done things like that. I mean, I, I just in the end, it, I think it's time to just enough messaging the MAGA and marketing the MAGA. We have to actually do the MAGA. And I've watched Ron DeSantis take a state that at the beginning of this century made hanging Chad a term. It was a complete joke. A state that Barack Obama won twice and turned that state redder than your state of Texas in a term. The Democratic Party doesn't exist in Florida. This is the first time in the history of, of Florida's statehood not a single Democrat has, holds statewide elected office in the state. He has reduced them to smoldering ash. They are nothing but a letterhead there. All the election integrity changes we want made, he already made them. He's been very active on the border. He's even sent troops to your state to help secure the border before your governor was willing to. Everything we've asked him to do, we've ever wanted a Republican to do, that I, it, he's a, essentially Ron DeSantis is the manifestation of every show I've ever done in my career. He's actually done it. But, he has, but here's the thing. It goes back full circle, Debbie, to what I said earlier. The vocational aspect of the job. It's not just that he has the right ideology. It's that he can move an agenda. When, 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 you know why you even have a Republican majority in the Congress? Because the Florida legislature put out a wimpy redistricting map last year. He rejected it, called them into a special session, made them come up with another one. And that redistricting map, along with a couple of gains in the state of New York, of all places, are even why there's a Republican majority in the House in, the, in D.C. at all. Everything we've ever wanted somebody to do, he has done, including when he makes mistakes. He did have he did actually hold off on locking down. He got criticized by the Trump White House and everybody else because they were still doing spring break. So in April, they locked down for a few weeks. When the data came in and it showed Fauci was wrong, he reopened everything again by May 1. Everybody attacked him. The Trump White House attacked him. They urged him to, to lock back down even at Christmas of that year. He didn't listen. They gave him the jab. They told him it would be great. He rolled it out with a lot of senior citizens, gave him the jab, looked at the data. It not only doesn't work. It's got incredible side effects. He stopped doing it. In other words, when he makes a mistake, he's not doubling down. He's not owning it. He's not, uh, he, he actually reverses course. What I see is a leader. And I, I think the country desperately needs generational change. I, I think, the, I think the, the best way to lose the next election is to run two 80-year-old men and watch Robert F. Kennedy Jr. get a Ross Perot like 15%. That, I, I think we desperately need generational change. There was one state in the union last year that had the red wave the entire country should have had, one. And it was Ron DeSantis's. They've had an over, the Republicans have over a half a million voter registration edge in Florida, of all places. Florida, he led that, he did that. He's done the things that Trump has talked about, tweeted about, boasted about, and look at the way he's behaved this week. He is the one national figure, the one in either party, who has been consistently presidential, staying on message, not rambling off about some, some, some you know, acts you want to grind with BB Netanyahu from three years ago that in the middle of a national funeral, frankly, isn't relevant right this minute. And here's, what, here's the other thing I love about it. He went to CNN. He went to MSNBC. In other words, he didn't say, hey, you know what? Those places hate me, so let me go find some bureaucrat that you'll listen to that's friendlier to you, like a Fauci. No, I'm the president. I will go there. 
I will speak to the whole of people in a time of crisis. And go watch those interviews with Morning Joe. Go watch those interviews with CNN. He's in total command. He gives them nothing. He surrenders on nothing. He gives them none of their points, but he does it without being a jerk. He does it he does it with with resolve, with confidence. It's it's uh, it's easily understandable. You can see why this guy just absolutely dominated Florida, and that is not an insignificant platform. It's the largest swing state in the union. Twenty-one million people live there. Next to the presidency, it's the largest political stage in the country because Texas is pretty much all Republican. California is pretty much all Democrat. And that leaves us with Florida. So I think that he is the fulfillment of everything that 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 people had hoped in Trump. I, I do think Trump should be given credit for what he did. I don't think it'd be possible to have a, a governor or president DeSantis without the narratives that Trump confronted and that he deconstructed. And he deserves credit for that. But in the end, when it came time to govern, when he had to actually navigate a crisis, he failed. And we're all still suffering from those choices now. Why do we have the inflation? COVID. We printed 80% of all dollar bills in American history starting on March, on, in March of 2020 with the CARES Act. Every, why do we have an open border? We lost the last election because they got to steal it because of the money they got from the CARES Act and they got to open the border. Why are we wasting money in Ukraine? Because they lo they, we lost the last election because they got to steal it from the money they got. from. The, I could do this all day. Everything we're facing right now, either it has its origin in COVID and the mismanagement of that, or it was it was exemplified and amplified by meaning it was already there and COVID and the mismanagement of that just made it worse. So in short, I saw a guy in Donald Trump who was a very good president until he had a crisis and then he collapsed. And then I saw a guy in Ron DeSantis who was a pretty good governor and then he had a crisis and he rose to the occasion. Okay, I actually am glad to give you that long, uh, you know, description, and I know you feel very strongly about that. Um, I'm, um, I am concerned with Ron DeSantis about his connections to BlackRock and who is funding him, and I don't know if he under, I don't know if he has the fight in him to do what I think needs to happen because you mean you, Trump De told, Debbie, you saw him, you saw him, you saw him punch, you saw him punch Disney in the face, and you don't think he's got what it? That's the most popular corporation in America, Debbie. He punched them in the mouth, and you don't think he's got what it takes to stand up to the corporatist? He actually did that. We'll see. I think Trump's. Biggest problem, I mean, it was COVID coming along and cooked up by the CCP, I would add. It wasn't naturally occurring, but Trump's reaction, I, I don't defend everything about Trump's reaction to that. Um, and I do think that the biggest fault I see in him is that even today in interviews, you can't just say, you know, it was, a, it was a crisis. I was told millions would die. I'm not a doctor. I don't understand anything. about. I, I don't know the medical mm -hmm. aspects of vaccines and, and viruses. So the government official here was supposed to help us is Fauci. I, I think he deferred to him uh, in the beginning. I didn't mind that he deferred to him because he, because he Trump, or no president really has that um, capacity to, to know this. But he went too, too long, allowed him to take control of the situation and, and didn't reassert leadership as he should have. And I wish he really would today, he, Trump, would really today speak up and say, yeah, it was a really big mistake to push the vaccines. He doesn't even acknowledge, and they, they were very dangerous and, and very, very bad. I will say, though, Trump, they got after him with this Trump-Russia collusion started early, the non-existent collusion started on mm -hmm. him early, and it really, that to me, crippled his presidency more than COVID, because it was a, a headline every day, underlying every news story as well, I know, but you know, he, when there was no collusion, it was cooked up by Hillary Clinton, 
he didn't, I mean, that I think was just a, um, I don't even know, it was a disaster for the country. Still hasn't been reconciled, still hasn't been, you know, people who were responsible for cooking up the story, Hillary and team and Fusion GPS, mm -hmm. nobody gets any responsibility, any accountability for that. And I attribute that more really to the deep state actors who don't, I mean, it's, again, I'll go back. Maybe it's my lawyer background. DOJ, FBI do not follow the law. They do not go after the people who commit the crimes who led up to the whole Trump-Russia collusion. And I think that was Trump's biggest problem. And yeah, I just, I, am, I don't see, I mean, I will vote for whatever Republican wins the primary, even if it's, you know, uh, Chris Christie, I'll back him, fine. But if I, but right now I see, I want to see the fighter, and my, my sense is, is it's more Trump than DeSantis. I feel a little bit concerned about the people who are backing him and funding him, and, but maybe he will rot, maybe he will be wonderful. Um, and, I, and, and so you had RFK in your show, by the way. So if RFK, is, is he interesting to you as a candidate if DeSantis, you know, seems to, DeSantis is off the scene, are you open to him? So I've not, we actually haven't had RFK Jr. on our show. I, the, the Trump campaign completely misconstrued that. Uh, that picture oh. was from January. We we did a special on Blaze TV uh, exposing the toxicity of the jab and, and highlighting people who lost their careers for refusing it. And he was one of our featured guests that was oh, okay. that was in the middle of January. I will say, and this is before he was even talking about being president, I will say I, I, I did spend a good portion of a day with him. And we had a lot of conversations, including private ones about the assassinations of his, of his father and his uncle. And I, I, I you know, I, I do think that he does a very deep commitment to go after the kinds of forces that you are talking about. Yeah. Um, now, the, the rest of his issue palette and how that lines up with our worldview is, is to be vetted in a presidential election. But that driving instinct and impulse that you articulated, I, I think that uh, he would be saying amen, sister, to you based on his family's experience. Hmm. Okay. Well, he, um, yeah, I know some people are, and I'm happy to have more about the lies about COVID exposed, more about Fauci exposed. I want people to understand how evil Fauci, the entire you know, pharmaceutical industry was the, you know, they're calling it the pharmaceutical government industrial complex, whatever you're going to call it. It is a mixture of the large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it's a circular uh, path about who, what, whether they're with federal agencies or back in the pharmaceutical companies. It, it's a disaster. It's, it's a completely captured role of our mm -hmm. federal government. So I love mm -hmm. that RFK is exposing that. I, um, uh, yeah, he, he's way out there on a bunch of issues where I think that most conservatives just couldn't get comfortable, couldn't couldn't get there. So, okay, so I will look forward to seeing you next week at Vitae yeah. Foundation here in Texas. And very quickly, again, for our listeners, you can go to vitaefoundation.org. Vitae is v -A, excuse me, V-I-T-A-E foundation.org slash Dallas Pro-Life Dinner. Uh, I will be there. Many of our friends will be there. We'll look forward to seeing Steve Dace there. And um, I just, this was, we, I could, I have a lot more questions, but our time is up. So I want to thank you for being available today. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you for joining me. Anytime. I really enjoyed it. And, and I apologize again for the terrible influence I've been on your son, but please tell him hello for me nevertheless. <laughs>
<laughs> well, he, he, I mean, honestly, he thought about whether he could leave work to come in the studio today to, to watch this. I'm like, you can watch it later. Yeah. Okay. But um, and you're not at all. I just, I'm thrilled he listens to you and, and hears all the great inputs you have. Uh, so thank you so much. So where we are right now, my very fine friends, we're wrapping up today's show. Uh, a week from today, we have Ann Vandersteel in studio. She's been flying all over the southern border, observing what's happening. She's She's got just a whole lot going on. So Ann Vandersteel in studio. She'll be wonderful. Next week, we have the following Thursday, Jeffrey Stamm, who is a former DEA agent. I heard speak recently at an event. And I'm telling you, when he's done telling you, the number and scope and... and uh, deadliness, uh, deadly nature of drugs in America and our DEA and other federal agencies basically doing pretty much nothing. I mean, when you hear what they could be doing, what they are doing, the spread of drugs in America um, and just the, the impact it has on our healthcare system, on our education system, whole bunch of things. He's an amazing guest. So he'll be that week. Uh, then we have... Um, uh, we have Shiva and Fleet coming in uh, in a few weeks. She is the woman who grew up under Mao Zedong um, and literally lived under the Cultural Revolution, people being murdered, families murdered in the streets, teachers being dragged out of school and murdered under Mao Zedong. She's written a new book trying to say to America, what you're watching the left do to this country, the American left in America, this is right down the path of Mao Zedong. She's writing this book. She's, we're bringing her in from the East Coast to talk about this because it's such an important topic to recognize how extremely um, dangerous what the left is doing to America really is. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk. You can find it at americacanwetalk.org. I do this show on Tuesdays and Thursdays at this point. I used to do it four days a week. I've shortened my schedule because I'm running for RNC committee woman from the state of Texas. You can find that website, Debbie G. The digit for rnc.com, debbieg for rnc.com. Check out that, our website. Uh, check out my show every Tuesday and Thursday. I do the show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you. <laughs>